Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. Now here's the show. I will always fight to put the American people first, not a few individuals that want something for themselves. So we may have a battle on the floor, but the battle is for the conference and the country, and that's fine with me. Republicans revolt against the man who would be speaker. It's Wednesday, January 4th, and this is Here and Now, Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, your state probably has new laws that took effect January 1st. We'll check in on three states where there's been some major legislative action. And we'll hear from a father-daughter duo working to protect sea turtles. But first, House Republicans have already done something historic in their first few days with the majority. The last time members took multiple ballots to elect a speaker was 100 years ago. Former President Donald Trump weighed in today on the squabble urging Republicans to vote for California Representative Kevin McCarthy to avoid what he called an embarrassing defeat. Princeton University historian Julian Selizer has been watching the debate and stopped by to put it in context with some other political issues of the day. He spoke to Deepa Fernandez this morning, before the House got in session today. So let's start with the right now. It's the first time in a century that the House couldn't elect a speaker on the first roll call vote. We've seen sharp political division for years, but what are the forces that made this fight happen right now? Well, part is the change that's happened in the Republican Party since the 1980s. You've seen a steady uh, radicalization of much of the party, uh, where larger and larger parts of it, whether it was the Newt Gingrich era in the 80s, the Tea Party in 2011 and 12, or now the Trumpist wing, Uh, are more comfortable with instability. They're not as concerned about governing. uh, And there's a lot more tolerance uh, for the kind of politics that we're seeing play out. And people like uh, McCarthy have opened the door to these forces, and often uh, they then have to deal with the consequences. Yeah. So what do you think, you know, this tells us, this fight right now tells us about what to expect from the next Congress? Well, I think it says a lot. Uh, If you have this much trouble uh, getting on the same page and committing to picking a leader, imagine when you're dealing with issues like raising the debt ceiling, um, which are going to be incredibly consequential and controversial. There'll be more tolerance for what you're seeing play out. So uh, House Republicans are going to have a a rocky road, as will uh, Democrats, because ultimately um, that's who they have to deal with. And one of the big political questions moving forward is what the House GOP majority will mean, as slim as it is, and now with this faction, kind of even less so. You say it could be a mixed blessing for Democrats. How so? Well, uh, on the one hand, it's obviously not great because once uh, Republicans establish control, it will be impossible, uh, nearly impossible, for President Biden and the Democrats to get legislation through the lower chamber. So you're looking at two years where nothing much is going to happen compared to the first two years. On the other hand, what's playing out now uh, can end up being uh, beneficial for Democrats, meaning the extremism and the inability to govern um, that characterizes this House Republican caucus could be a big talking point, a big issue for voters 
going into 2024. That's what happened uh, with Newt Gingrich and the Republicans. uh, And that extremism can ultimately work against the GOP. You know, I I think that there's many of us who say, gosh, do we already have to look forward to 2024? We just finished the midterms and we're trying to figure out what's happening in this Congress. But clearly, 2024 looms large and and matters. Do you think, is it too early to be talking about, you know, President Biden running for re-election and the challenges he'll face within his own party? Absolutely not. Uh, This is American politics uh, 101 (laughs) and the campaign is underway. Uh, Both uh, President Biden figuring out uh, or confirming that he will run for re-election and any potential challenges. Republicans are already sorting through who the candidates will be. Former President Trump has already announced. And what happens on Capitol Hill in terms of legislation, investigation, and more will have a big influence on how voters think of the parties in 2024. So it's not too early at all. That election, in many ways, is already underway. Mm. So so I think the big question then is really about our democracy. W- will it be stable? There's, there's still election denialism. There's a Congress that you just helped us understand might not get much done in the next two years. But no, it's not stable. And uh, everything that we lived through uh, that culminated in January 6th uh, is still very much a problem. And we have to deal with the underlying forces that allowed an effort to overturn the election, the highest levels of power to take place. Otherwise, we remain at risk. Princeton University historian Julian Zelza. Julian, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Head to hereandnow.org for the latest out of Washington as it develops. We've also got a conversation with a Republican political strategist about what the fight over speaker says about the party. And if you want daily updates on the blow-by-blow in D.C., subscribe to the NPR Politics Podcast. You can find that wherever you've already subscribed to this podcast. Well, despite what's happening at the House of Representatives, state houses across the country are plenty busy. After the break, Celeste Headley checks in with reporters in three states where the new year has brought new laws. We'll hear about a board that could set minimum wage rules for fast food restaurants in California, criminal justice reform in Illinois, and in Florida, new restrictions on when politicians can waltz through that revolving door into becoming lobbyists. Stick around. The new year brings thousands of new state laws that are now in effect. From minimum wage hikes to abortion protections, we'll travel around the country now to the South, Midwest, and West Coast to round up the most notable new laws. And let's begin in California's capital of Sacramento, where the governor signed nearly a thousand bills last year that are now law. Nick Miller is here to break it all down for us. He is managing editor at Cap Radio in Sacramento. Hi, Nick. Hi. So minimum wage is a popular topic. Nearly half of all states are increasing their minimum wages this year. And in California, the minimum wage is now fifteen fifty an hour for all workers. And there's also a new law raising wages for fast food workers that's actually getting some criticism from businesses. Can you tell us about that? It is. So this is the Fast Recovery Act. And It would do something that's sort of first of its kind in the country. It would create a council that sets the rules for how chain food restaurants 
pay their workers. And they would set the minimum wage and they would have an upper limit of starting out at about $22 an hour. However, this is opposed by a group called Save Local Restaurants. And notably, its biggest funders are you know, In-N-Out Burger, Chipotle, Starbucks, among others. And uh, they signed signatures to uh, put this issue on the ballot in California in 2024. In addition to that, they've also had a temporary restraining order for the implementation of this new law. So while it's an innovative new law that's going to affect you know, service employee workers at fast food restaurants across the Golden State, it won't go into effect, and there's going to be a court hearing later this month. Okay. Um, also, the constitutional right to abortion um, eliminated by the Supreme Court in June, but laws in 13 states completely restrict abortion with some, in some cases, very limited exceptions, while many states controlled by a Democratic legislature are passing laws that increase access to abortion. How is that tilting in California? Uh, this has been a top priority in California for Democratic lawmakers who are the governing lawmakers here in the Golden State since the Dobbs ruling this past summer. The biggest new law gives qualified nurse practitioners and certified nurse midwives, it gives them the ability to perform first trimester abortions in the state without the supervision of a physician. So this is a little different. You know, it codifies laws that were already on the books, but it, it sort of expands you know, what a, a nurse practitioner can do in the state. And there's also, you know, a couple new laws. Most notably, state agencies will be prohibited from helping out with out-of-state abortion investigations, which we know is something that's been an issue nationally. That's sort of the California response to that. So a lot of new legislation here in California related to abortion and reproductive rights. Also, to end here, California passed several new laws that are related to racial and social justice issues. Can you tell me about one or two of those? I will, yeah. One that's really interesting is so we've had a lot of incidents at California schools involving hate crimes and, and the use of hate symbols, symbols, sorry, swastikas, nooses, desecrated crosses. And so there's a new bill that increases penalties for these crimes at K-12 through schools and colleges Really, this is, um, I guess, you know, the lawmakers described it as there's just not a lot of clarity in the law on how to respond to these hate crimes. And But, you know, here in Sacramento, the police department says they have seen more than 100 of these bias-related incidents in, in 2022, in the first part of the year. And so this law is directly addressing, you know, this rise in, in hate crimes and the use of hate symbols at schools. Nick Miller is Managing Editor at Cap Radio in Sacramento. Nick, thank you so much. Anytime. Thank you. And to Illinois now, a new law there eliminates cash bail, but it's on hold. The Safety Act would have made Illinois the first state to end cash bail for some felons. It also phases in police body cameras by 2025 and regulates police training. Let's bring in Mawa Iqbal. She's State House reporter at WBEZ in Chicago. Hi, Mawa. Hi, thanks for having me. So this law went through a number of revisions. It was eventually signed by the governor, but now the state Supreme Court has paused the part of this bill that includes cash bail restrictions. Why? So basically right now, the Illinois Supreme Court is reviewing a lower court's decision that found that the cash bail portion of the law is unconstitutional. And so how we got here was basically there was a lawsuit that was filed last year by over 60 state attorneys from all over Illinois, and 
They were suing Governor J.B. Pritzker and other top Democratic leaders, arguing that there are multiple sections in the state constitution that call for a money bond system. And so mm-hmm. if you're going to change the constitution, you're going to amend it anyway, you have to do it through the voters. So, so like a ballot amendment that voters can vote on through the elections rather than through the state legislature. And so the lower court judge ended up siding with the plaintiffs and found that eliminating cash bail was unconstitutional. But the way the decision stood was cash bail was going to stay only in those like 60 plus counties that were involved in the lawsuit. But everywhere else, it was going to go away starting January 1st. And so obviously the Supreme Court knew that this would cause a lot of confusion and just be very inconsistent throughout the state. And so they were like, let's just put a pause on the January 1st effect date until we can review that decision. And so as far as when we can expect a final decision from the Supreme Court, we don't know too much yet, but we do know that they will post a briefing schedule for when the briefings from both sides should be filed by the end of this week. Mm -hmm. So my guess is we won't hear anything for the next couple weeks, I think. So there's another new law attracting attention, and this would create a Mm -hmm. task force on missing and murdered women in Chicago. Can you give us more details? Yeah, so that was basically an effort that was led by Democratic State Senator Maddie Hunter, who represents a lot of Chicago. And she was going off of this 2018 report from the Chicago Tribune that found that since 2001, 75 women and girls from the south and west sides of Chicago were found murdered. And of those 51, um, those cases were completely cold, uh, no leads, unsolved. Um, they, they have no idea who the perpetrator was. And yeah. A thing to note about the south and west sides of Chicago is that these are predominantly black parts of town. And so most, if not all, of the victims were black women and young girls. And so a main goal of the task force is to try to analyze and address, you know, like, why is there disproportionate level of violence against black women? And why do these cases, you know, go cold? Like, is there just a lack of police attention, a lack of public attention? You know, what's sort of going on here? So... Well, it'll be interesting to, to see what they find out. Uh, Mawa Iqbal is State House reporter at WBEZ in Chicago. Mawa, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. And finally, to Florida now. A new state law there bans politicians from being lobbyists, and it's already leading to some resignations. WUSF's Kathy Carter is here. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Celeste. So this law extends the amount of time that lawmakers have to wait before they take a job as a lobbyist. Can you explain? Sure. The uh, new law carries out a constitutional amendment that Florida voters overwhelmingly passed back in 2018. And as you said, it expands from two years to six years, the time that certain officials, uh, council city members, uh, school board members, lawmakers have to uh, start lobbying after they leave their government positions. And people are resigning because of it? Already, some cabinet members uh, of Governor Ron DeSantis have left their positions. And Luby Navarro, who uh, was the vice chair of the Miami-Dade School Board, uh, resigned her post. And according to a letter that was obtained by the Miami Herald, she did sign the new lobbying ban as the reason for her departure. Now, she's been a Miami-Dade School Board member since 2015, and she's also registered as a lobbyist for the uh, South Broward Hospital District. So she has left her post, and that means Governor Ron DeSantis will be appointing a new board member. Speaking of school boards, perhaps getting even more headlines is the big education law. It includes a mandatory training program for school librarians. Why? What, what are they being trained in? 
Right. So this is, as you said, Celeste, part of the um, larger education bills that were passed last year. Now, this new law requires that uh, beginning in January, library media specialists, uh, librarians in all of Florida's public schools will have to undergo a mandatory training program. Uh, It's developed by the state education department. The training has to be completed uh, by July and then signed off by county school district superintendents. And this is part of the larger education bill where uh, Governor Ron DeSantis and the Florida legislature legislature drafted limits on what teachers can say about race, gender, and sexual orientation. So uh, they're developing training that uh, is going to enact uh, those measures. And I have to imagine that there's some discussion about what it is they'll be training them to do. I mean, who gets to decide what's appropriate and what isn't? (laughs) <laughs> Very good question. Uh, so the race-related instruction, uh, you might remember that as the um, Stop Wrongs to Our Kids Employees Act, which is the Stop Woke Act. And then there was that uh, limit on uh, race and gender and sexual orientation being taught to kindergarten through third grade, which was called the Parental Rights Bill, which opponents called the Don't Say Gay Bill. So I imagine those are kind of the limits that will be in place already. The uh, Duval County School District has taken 47 books off their school shelves uh, that they ordered. Uh, they will not be going into the classrooms. One was for a book uh, for fourth graders about Martin Luther King Jr. And a lot of um, of the books also had LGBTQ characters. So I imagine these uh, librarians will be, you know, looking at those uh, issues as they choose what materials will be going into the classroom. Hmm. Kathy Carter is a reporter for WUSF in Tampa, Florida. Kathy, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Celeste. Coming up next, Deepa speaks with two conservationists in Costa Rica who are saving sea turtles. That's after the break. And now for some good environmental news. Sea turtles, those gorgeous four-legged ocean creatures, are safer in some parts of the world. More than one million sea turtles were illegally harvested between 1990 and 2020, but a new analysis has found that the illegal catch of sea turtles was nearly 30% lower between 2010 and 2020 than in the previous decade. And that happened because conservationists around the world have been actively working to stop the poaching of sea turtle eggs. We're joined now by a father-daughter team from Costa Rica who've been doing this work for years. Claudio Quesada Rodriguez runs research and conservation projects for a Masula NGO, Ecology Project International. He's based in the Pacuare Reserve in Costa Rica. And his 13-year-old daughter, Sara, has been accompanying her father on turtle protection missions since she was four. And she joins us too. Welcome to both of you. Hello. Thank you. Hello. (laughs) So, Claudio, I'm going to start with you. Set the global sea turtle stage for us. Why have these creatures been so devastated by poaching? Why are sea turtles and their eggs so valuable to poachers? Well, many people consider that they are aphrodisiac. Even they use the sea turtle eggs or the meat. Uh, Many years ago, it used to be the only source of protein for many communities. But right now, people don't like need it anymore. There are more sources of protein in the world. So poaching has decreased a lot in the, in the last few years. Okay. And, and sea turtles, obviously, they're beautiful animals. But 
clearly it's more it's important to protect them from poachers you know not just because we think they're beautiful make the environmental case for us why do sea turtles matter to the greater environmental good well basically every organism in the in in nature plays a key role so sea turtles is really important as they are sometimes on the top of the food chain so for example the letterbugs they they feed on um, plankton and jellyfish. So if the population of letterbugs decrease, the population of jellyfish will increase and those jellyfish will eat more plankton. Many of the species of plankton are larvae for many uh, fish. So if that happens, the fisheries will decrease the amount of fish that they can get every day. So, Claudia, tell us what exactly you do to protect the sea turtles. So, basically, we go to the beach every night during the nesting and hatchling season. We collect the eggs. We collect a lot of data. We move the eggs to the hatchery because right now, uh, mainly because of global warming, about 80% of the eggs could um, just float in, in the currents or in the wave if we don't take any action. So we move the eggs to the hatchery uh, where most of the hatchlings will hatch and then we release those babies. But as well, at the end of the season, uh, we do an analysis and we try to get better for the next season. So it's, it is a lot of work, a lot of physical work during the night. But as well, we need to do a lot of analysis to try to understand why um, or, or what we can improve for the next season. Now, where you live in Costa Rica, poaching sea turtles has been an especially big problem. How have you and your fellow conservationists worked to stop poachers? Because as I understand it, this past year, only 0.2% of sea turtles were poached in the Pacuare Reserve, which is down from years when it was 99% of all eggs being poached. Tell us how you achieved this. Well, I, I think that the, that the answer is environmental education. We need to tell and we need to teach local communities and over, over the world how important and why sea turtles are important for the ecosystem, uh, the key role they play. We need to involve especially kids and teenagers in this magic science that they can discover in places like Bacuari Reserve. So that's why um, the poaching rate has decreased that much. Hmm. Okay. You work with an American NGO called Ecology Project International, which empowers young people and local students around the world, as well as where you are, to take leadership in habitat conservation your daughter, Sarah, is one of them. Hola, Sarah. So can you tell us what you do to help save sea turtles? Bueno, yo ayudo pues recolectar eh, datos de... Well, I help in collecting eh, data for all the programs. I also help with field work. I get my hands dirty helping however I can. I also go with groups out to the turtle reserves because there are always new people coming. So I help out and offer them support. Tell me about the sea turtles. What might we not know about them that you know from having spent so much time with them? Pues, no sé. 
exactamente todo como mi papá, que es un experto. Well, I'm not as expert as my dad, but I do know a lot about how turtles nest at certain beaches. Some sea turtles nest more than others, and some are small and some are bigger. This is some of what I've learned over the years, mostly from being by my father's side as he is always talking about this type of data. I have to ask you, Sarah, I'm very curious, why do you care about sea turtles? You're, you're a teenager and I'm sure you have many things going on in your life. Tell me why you spend this time at the beach and at night protecting turtle eggs. Well, I think that sea turtles are really important animals in the ocean's ecosystem. The reason I spend so much time and effort with them is really because I just like them so much. I feel like I am helping save the species, even helping the planet to keep going. I feel like it is worth the effort to make sure the incredible sea turtles can nest safely. In the end, I feel like you can see our efforts. So, Claudio, now that it seems like sea turtles are greater in number due to efforts like yours, is it necessary to keep up the protection work? Oh, yeah. Actually, I, I can tell that this is the beginning of the conservation. You know, we have been working so hard for so many years, and we are uh, right now seeing the first results after 30 years. So obviously we need to keep uh, doing the environmental education. We need to keep protecting the sea turtles in, in the nesting beaches. Um, I'm pretty sure if we stop doing this, the situation will get back because as normally happened, there will be a new generation in a few years. And if they, ha if they don't have the information, they, they won't care as the current generation is caring about the conservation of sea turtles. Sarah, can you tell us a sea turtle memory of yours to end up something that you'll always remember or hold dear? Well, I clearly remember when I was a little girl, one day I went out to the beach and saw a huge sea turtle. I always remember that because it had such a big impact on me. It is such a big and beautiful animal, and since then I have always wanted to protect it. Sara Quesada, muchas gracias para su tiempo. Eh, con mucho gusto y muchas gracias por pues, entrevistarme. Claudio, thank you so much. Um, thank you. Thank you for your time and for your effort sharing this information to the world. This podcast comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. As always, there's more to read and listen to at hereandnow.org, including a look at the rise of Major League Cricket in the U.S., Many of the up-and-coming American players have roots in South Asia. My dad actually built some cages in our backyard, so I spent a lot of my time there practicing with him. In my off time, I would think about cricket, and I would just want to do everything I can to get better at it. To hear that conversation, head to hereandnow.org. Today's stories were produced by Jill Ryan, Sam Rafelson, and Devin Speak. Our editors today are Todd Munt and Gabe Bullard. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. The executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. 
Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. 